So we're in the book of James, chapter 2. Let's begin with verse 1. As James writes, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He starts off with a command. My brothers, show no partiality. This is in the imperative mood. It is a command written by James. He's saying that, no, there cannot be any partiality as you hold the faith in our, in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, the, the, our faith transforms all of the different distinctions that normally divide us in our natural world. One of the things that's been going on in our culture lately is we do see a lot of racial tensions. We see that. Uh, we, we've seen that going on. And I was reminded of our brother, Herman Shelton, when he said, you know, it's not about race in many ways. He said uh, to me, he goes, it doesn't matter if they're the same color because even when they're the same color, there are fights between them. He says, look at the different tribes in certain African nations that they fight with one another all the time. And they hate each other and they might be of the same tribe. So it's not about their color. Or he said, whether it's black, whether it's uh, Asian, whether it's Hispanic, whether it's Anglo or white, he said, even if you look within Ireland, I mean, these are all white people, and they're fighting with one another all the time. So it comes down to really what's in the human heart, because we all look to find distinctions to set us apart from other people. We want to surround ourselves with people that look like us, act like us, and value the same things that we do. But see, when it comes into the body of Christ, there's this new, in essence, tribe a new people group that is formed that goes beyond skin color, that goes beyond culture, that goes beyond economics, that goes beyond education. That's one of the things, by the way, that I love about our church. I really do. Uh, We were working with a a man a little while back. He was doing some of the studies in our community, and he had a spectrum between ministering in a community as easy or extremely challenging. We were on the extremely challenging side of the spectrum because of the diversity of cultures, of economics, of education. And you know what? I I was actually thrilled that we were in the most challenging part because it said it, it just shows God's glory above all things. It shows the power of God working in the hearts and minds of people. And my prayer has been that we would be a church that would be diverse across the board, whether it's generationally, whether it's economically, whether it's educationally, whether it's racially or culturally, that we would truly be the one people of God, one family of God, one tribe of God, not abandoning our differences, but noticing how God has worked and embedded within each one of our cultures testimonies to who he is. That's why I enjoy traveling to different cultures because when I see how some people are responding to God in a different culture, I see blind spots in my own. And I, have a, I learn from each culture. I'm able to see what God is doing in that culture. And then I come along to serve and be a student of that. And I hope we are being students of that. That God doesn't just speak to one cultural group. Matter of fact, when you look within church history, the early church was extremely diverse. I mean, even when you look at it in church history and some of the early church teachers and and leaders, you might have heard names such as Tertullian or Augustine. Uh, You might have heard that or a name Athanasius. Do you know these are all African? They're all from Africa. So we have Africans, you have Asians, you you have Europeans, you have all of these different people that are coming together to form this one people of God. And so James is trying to show us that it goes beyond anything that we really know. And we can't show partiality, even though that's our natural tendency. We want to identify with those who look like us and sound like us. 
But James begins by commanding those in the church not to show any partiality or favoritism. In other words, James challenges us to behave like believers, which means we need to abandon any hint of favoritism. That's the first point that we need to write down. We have to abandon that. Um, and, it, and it can't imagine, mean what color they are, the cost of their stuff, the college that they went to, the culture they're from, uh, the city they're from, the team they root for. All of those distinctions we have to leave at the door because God is not a God of partiality. We see this in the books of Acts chapter 10, verse 34. When Peter gets a lesson in God's view of the nations, when he has this vision of this, this uh, in essence, big tarp coming down with all these unclean animals, and in the vision, uh, he has told Peter, kill and get up and eat. And he's like, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm a Jew. The law, Old Testament law, forbids me from eating these things. And then it happens again. And he says, no, I'm not supposed to do this, in essence. And God says... Don't call unclean what God has declared clean. In other words, he's saying, I'm doing something new. That I spoke to the Jewish nation, but the point of the Jewish nation was to bring forth God's Messiah who would be a blessing to the entire world that would unite all of the scattered peoples of the world into one heavenly, godly tribe or family. But he says this, and Peter gets this really huge lesson, and we see in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's a wonderful thing. That's a great lesson for us to behold. Paul actually reminds us again in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, when he says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. And, and those are the two terms that he's using to look at the entire world. The Jews were considered to be the people of God, and Greek actually sometimes was even looked at as a Gentile or an unbeliever. That's sometimes the terms that they would use for that. So he's saying that there is, there's uh, those who are outside of God's program, and these were the special people of God. But in Christ, it changes things. That you don't have that privileged position Now we are one people. There is neither slave nor free. Your status is now changed. There's neither male, no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, he's not saying that we are not, um, that every distinction or function of who we are is removed, but in our essence, we are all equally valued of God. And we all, all of those distinctions that we look at to differ, differentiate us in the world are now removed and God is, can have a relationship with any of these people. And he eliminates many of those different distinctions. Now, it doesn't mean our functions aren't different. Some people have actually taken this passage to say, oh, since there's no, Jew, there's no this or no that, then we're, we're completely have the same function. That's not true. Meaning that in essence, we are all acceptable, but in function, we still might uh, differ. Not, and that mainly is a reference to gender. Uh, but that's for another time. I don't want to get off topic. But see, if we practice favoritism, then we have departed from Jesus' example. Jesus was completely radical in his understanding and views of race. See, that's the entire thing that James is writing about is rooted in verse 1. My brothers, my, my people who are fellow believers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He says that this faith, this is new, and it is different from what you have known. Because Jesus, he had a totally different way of doing things. Matter of fact, Jesus reached out to people that caused the disciples to gasp. 
He reached out to the, the Samaritan. He reached out to the immoral. He reached out to different races and different groups. He reached out to the, the Roman centurion. He reaches out to the Canaanite. He reaches out to the Syrophoenician woman. And he heals them. He touches them. He transforms them. He uses case examples to show the racism that was involved in the people of God, in essence. For example, when he tells the story of the Good Samaritan, that's not just about helping your brother. That's helping the brother who is extremely different from you. And he told that to really hit the Pharisees where it, where, where it was. Because, see, the Samaritans were considered half-breeds. They were they had um, not accurate knowledge of the law. They were a polluted race, in essence. Matter of fact, Jewish leaders went out of their way not to go through Samaria. I mean, to go into Samaria. They'd go around it so they wouldn't interact or pollute themselves. And we see Jesus in his, uh, his, the story of Jesus with the, the Samaritan woman. He goes right in and sits down and interacts to the surprise of this woman. Because first of all, he's a Jew interacting with a Samaritan. That's, that, that's hard enough as it is. Secondly, he's a man interacting with a woman. And in that culture, um, there wasn't a lot of interaction between men and women. And we have much more of an egalitarian society but in this culture, much more uh, patriarchal in its nature, and the, the gender separation was much, much greater. And so he's interacting now with a woman, and then, to, to, to top it all off, he's a righteous rabbi, and she's completely immoral. And he is, he is showing great love, and he even uses it as an illustration, and he says that the fields are white for harvest with people like this, that you're passing away, you're, you're going by, and not seeing that these are the very people that God wants to inherit his kingdom. And if that's what God wants, then that's how we should be. We need to follow Jesus' example, and when we practice favoritism, we abandon Jesus' example. And we've deviated from Jesus' kingdom ethic. Notice again in our passage in James chapter 2, in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? As we've talked about, we, don't, we, we actually have overlooked this understanding of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Because Jesus actually talks more about the kingdom of God in the Gospels than he ever does about the church. Matter of fact, the church is only mentioned about four times within the Gospels. But we're, we're in, in, the, uh, in the Gospels, he mentions the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God over 80 times. And he's saying here that God himself has chosen not those who seem to be the best and the brightest. He's not picking the who's who to be in the church, people that we think are worthy of that, because God looks at the heart, and God totally reverses his, the worldly kingdom with his kingdom. And Paul actually talks a great deal of, uh, about this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter six, uh, 1, verse 26 through 29. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He totally changes the order of everything. Jesus' kingdom turned everything upside down. He gave hope. He doesn't look the, the things the way that men do. He looks at the heart. 
And when we look at someone on the base of how much money they give, the color of their skin, how much education they have, the job they possess, or anything else that causes us to give preferential treatment to someone and put down another, then we have deviated from God's plan for God's kingdom. And in verse 7, James gives us further evidence that we can't play favorites based, favorites based on externals. He says, Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? See, he rubs salt in their wound by saying that they have treated these folks who persecuted the believers with greater honor than those who were poor. Their externals were right, but internals were wrong. Now, when we treat others with favoritism, James gives us some tough words in verse 9. He says this, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, we have disobeyed God's word. If we uh, don't, if we practice favoritism, then we have totally disobeyed God's word. Now, many of us don't think that. I mean, especially, I'm amazed when I read back in certain church documents, especially in the 1800s in the United States of America, and how many people would use God's word to justify racism. I mean, I even saw it and heard some of this growing up from uh, different teachers that I would hear, and they would say how certain races shouldn't be mixed together. And I'm like, where are you getting this from? Where are you getting this from? But they would use that to justify racism. But here he's saying, if you're doing that, if you're showing that type of distinction, you have disobeyed God's word. God's not for racism. One only need read the book of Jonah to see how God feels about racism. Remember, God wanted Jonah to reach the hated Ninevites, but Jonah refused because of all the evil that they had done to the Israelites. Nevertheless, God wanted to reach Uh, reached them badly. So badly, he was willing to use Jonah as an object lesson to show how much he cares for people. Or think about the stories of the Good Samaritan, as I mentioned just a little bit ago, or Jesus' actions with the Samaritan woman at the well. Both of them show God loved those who were deemed to be from polluted races. Now, some of us in this room come from countries where we hold grudges against different tribes. Uh, I know that some of us in the United States of America, there's a history of racism. And I know from, any, some, from some of the countries that some of our people come from, there's a history of it. I was speaking to a friend of mine who actually has, has come to our church several times. I, and I told him I was going to Liberia. And he asked me what city I was going to. And I said, I was going to this one. He goes, oh, I said, have you ever been there? He goes, no, I can't go there. Because of the tribe I'm from, they would kill me. And I thought, wow, it, racism doesn't know just one country. It is all over. And as the people of God, we have to be different and realize we are one tribe, one family of God. And what unites us is greater than any difference that could ever separate us. But we have to realize that. We have to work at that. We have to teach about that and we have to practice that. But when we we give in to favoritism or racism or any type of discrimination based on economics or any other issue externally, and we've disobeyed God's word. Now, if we practice this discrimination or favoritism, then we've also distorted our testimony. We have distorted our testimony. Now, how can we show the world the love of Christ when we harbor favoritism, discrimination, or racism in our hearts? How can we show unity with those we treat as if they are second class? Didn't Jesus say that it was through unity with other believers that the world can see who Jesus is? We see this in the book of John, chapter 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer. He says this, 
I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, meaning the apostles, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world, this is the, the real highlight here, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. See how that is? It's saying there that it's through the unity that we have that Jesus' name emanates. It's through the love that we can have for one another by forgiving one another, by overlooking faults, by speaking out and, and, and putting to, to, to death those hurts that we have had from that other person by forgiving them. And then we are showing grace in ways that are beyond any natural human ability. And by doing that, people look at us and go, how could you do that? It's because of what Jesus has done for us. That's why we, we have to work at it. It doesn't come naturally. It means that it's going to be uncomfortable. We have to listen to one another, see one another's hurts, understand what one another is going through. We have to put our politics and leave it at the door and let Christ speak to the depth of our being. Because when we, when we hold on to that, it's damaging our testimony. It's damaging our testimony. See, one of the things that did strike me when I was in Liberia, when I heard that it was a nation that was overwhelmingly Christian, 90%, but yet had gone through two civil wars and saw a million people die. If Christ is truly in that body, in that, in that country, and they're really that big Christians, they shouldn't be fighting like that. Because we're to, to abandon our prejudices. Because what would happen as soon as one tribe would get into power, they would over, in essence, lord it over the other ones, and the other ones would, would try to stand up for themselves, and that's not what it's about. See, they were showing favoritism, and it caused other people to be hurt by that. That's why we have to work being objective and loving people and abandoning that favoritism as much as we can. And we have to admit that we have those things and we have to work at it to put it to the side. That's what he's calling us to do because it does distort our testimony. I mean, remember, the kingdom of God is made up of all kinds of people of which the church is a template and a foretaste of what will be in heaven. And if we fail to show that Christ is greater than our differences, then we fail to understand how great God is and what he has done for us in Christ. Now, Jesus transitions a bit in verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, the royal law here is Jesus' summation of the second part of the Ten Commandments. Fulfilling the royal law means treating your neighbor as yourself. James is saying if, which is a conditional word in verse 8 and in verse 9. If you want to fulfill the royal law or if you show partiality, he's contrasting two types of treatment, one that loves others and one that shows partiality. And James is calling us, in other words, to recalibrate our focus. How do we want to live? Do you want to be like this? If you want to show the royal law according to Scripture, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, this is what's going to happen. How do we want to live? Do we want to do what God wants us to do or keep on in our discrimination and in our hate? Look at verse 10. He says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point, he's become guilty of all of it. For he who said, Do not commit adultery, also said, Do not murder. 
If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. See, this is fascinating what James is doing here. What he's saying is, in essence... He's saying that we have a tendency to focus on everybody else's sin. See, he's saying, hey, you who say don't commit adultery, are you committing murder? Hey, because we have a tendency to look at other people's sins, but excuse the own sins in our own heart. That's what he's doing. That's what he's setting up this hypothetical conversation between two people. And one is saying, hey, you shouldn't do this. And he's like, um, take a look in the mirror. See, we have, to, we have this tendency to focus on everybody else's sins and not our own. And he's saying, take a look in the mirror at yourself and and analyze yourself to understand how really bad you are. In the same time, not only do we focus and highlight everybody else's sins, but we have the same, we actually excuse our own. You ever done that? I know that I have. Where you highlight someone else, this is what they've done, this is what they have done, but we have to, to look at ourselves. Jesus actually talks about this in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7 when he says this, Judge not lest you be judged, or that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log out of your own eye? And then you will see clearly or take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, many of us, I mean, we we don't really talk about planks and logs very often. So I like to look at it slightly, if I could change it slightly. It's like looking at somebody else and you might say, hey, you've got something in your teeth, right? And they're looking at you and you've got just mud all over your face. And see, and you're like, um, you got some of your teeth, and you're like, dude. <laughs> it's much more obvious. You can see that. And he's saying, look in the mirror first and check out yourself and understand. We do have this propensity to focus on everybody else's, but we do excuse our own. What we have to remember, though, is that all of us ultimately are considered guilty of breaking every one of God's commands. Because we're saying that one command, in essence, that's what James is doing. He's saying that you broke that one command, and matter of fact, you broke a couple of them, and I only broke this one, so you're a greater sinner than I am. And James says, if you're guilty of breaking one, you're guilty of breaking it all. In essence, it's like this. Imagine that you have a, a, a chain wrapped around you with ten different lengths, and you're da- dangling over a pit. It doesn't matter which chain I cut each link. I, I just cut one of them, and that causes you to sink. He's saying if, you cut, if you've broken any one of God's commands, any one of those links, you're going down. That's what it means. To break that one command means you're guilty of breaking them all. And we have to realize that because we are guilty of breaking every one of God's commands. So James is trying to show us that we're all fallen. It doesn't matter which one has been broken. They seem pretty severe. It seems pretty severe though, doesn't it? See, what's amazing amazing to me is not how severe that is, but how amazing God's grace really is. The more I meditated on this passage, the more I was overwhelmed with the greatness of God's gospel. And I remember a quote that I had read from Tim Keller that I've shared in here before. He, He said this, The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I love that quote 
because I believe it is truly representative of what James is trying to communicate to us. See, we have this tendency to really excuse our sin. See, Jesus spoke. Jesus, I mean, not Jesus, excuse me. Tim Keller shared this because I believe he understood our failure to grasp the depth of our sin. You know, I was talking with a church that had contacted us this past week, a church in Aurora. It's a, I would call it a very, very liberal church. And I'm talking to uh, the pastor of the church, and they said, well, I was brought in 10 years ago to help this church die with dignity. It had 22 members in it, and it was dying, and I was going to help this denomination close this church. And, and I'm proud to say it's 10 years later, and we still have those 22 people. And I'm like, that's sad. See, they thought it was a victory, and I'm like, it's because you, in essence, have departed. They don't preach the word of God. They don't talk about the gospel of God, and therefore, I believe they've lost their power. Uh, they've lost the, the validity or authenticity of their testimony because really what it was is I was looking at their website, and, and they, they don't preach about Christ crucified. They don't br- preach that we are sinners that are in desperate need of a Savior. And I think a lot of the problems that we're seeing within Christianity today is a failure to grasp how really bad and destitute we were before God. We fail to understand the depth of our sin and we minimize our sin. Therefore, when we see sin in other people, we in in many ways are excusing it or allow them to continue in it. You see, that's one of the things that's going on today when we're talking about the subject that's in the news a lot about homosexuality. People are like, why can't it be okay? Well, because God has condemned it. Like, well, if they're in love, I mean, God is all about love. God is all about love, but he's also about holiness. God is also a God of wrath. And he showed the depth of his love on the cross, which he wanted to put away sin, not allowing other people to continue in it. You don't understand. They're like, well, it's not that bad. Have you looked at yourself? See, you've made yourself look not that bad. See, what you're doing is you're projecting your view of yourself on that individual and not understanding that they are condemned, as are you. You are condemned because of your sin, just like I am. I can't, they can't continue in their sin, but I can't continue in my sin any longer either. Because my sin is, is a real stench in the sight of God. Look at the cross, and you'll see what your sin merited, what it required. That's what happened. See, it's, it's, it's how bad we were, which shows how great God is. That's the reason that many of us don't have joy in our Christian life. Because we can't fully comprehend what God has done for us in Christ on the cross and what it truly meant. And because of our failure to grasp that, we cannot experience that full life or that that full joy that God has for us. See, we have have forgotten that, how desperate we really are and how lost we really were. And therefore, we don't understand how great God really is. See, Jesus came to save us from our sin, and I want to get a little bit specific from that. See, the book of Galatians in chapter 5 lists aspects of our sinful nature and how bad we really were. I don't have this as a slide, but I'm going to give you a list. He says that we are uh, the acts, or these acts that God came to save us from. It made, whether it was lust, pride, envy, anger, gluttony, sloth, sexual immorality, gossip, stealing, drunkenness, slander, drugs, witchcraft, sorcery, sensuality. We go through this list often. But I want to get a little bit more specific. Sexual immorality is sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend before you're married or sleeping with someone who is not your spouse. 
It could involve pornography or a whole host of other things. Then there is impurity that's in Galatians chapter 5 that involves all kinds of things, watching shows or videos with nudity, profanity, and the like, and it goes beyond that. Sensuality, pornography, and the like, idolatry, putting anything in your life before God, sorcery, which does not just mean witchcraft, but it actually refers to any drug that causes hallucinogenic effects. See, the word for sorcery in Galatians chapter 5 is the Greek word pharmakia, where we get the word pharmacy. And the idea was taking a drug that would induce one to have any type of hallucinations and change one's view of things. And he's saying that we cannot be doing that. And he goes on, enmity, which is, refers to hating others and strife. Uh, hating others, excuse me, or strife, which is an affection for fighting. There's jealousy, wanting what someone else has, fits of anger or rage, and then rivalries, and refers to selfish ambition to get followers for oneself. Fits of anger, rivalries, and then there's dissension that refers to separating people to divisions for a pointless reason, and then divisions that refer to a self-chosen opinion, a religious or philosophical sect, discord or contention. And the idea in that is that there are divisions arising from diversity of opinions and aims. In other words, one is pursuing something beyond the gospel, which is promoting legalism, or pursuing something outside of the gospel, something the Bible condemns, which is licentiousness. Then, of course, there is uh, envy, which means believing you are, you should have what someone else has, and then wishing ill about them. Drunkenness is self-explanatory. Orgies, where there are riotous parties, or a drunken feast, which hosted unbridled sexual immorality. And the passage in Galatians 5 ends with things like these, just to make sure that everyone is on the same page. See, why do I go through that list and explain that to you? Because I want us to get really specific to see how bad our sin really is. I really think, and I've heard so many Christians just gloss over their sin like it's a bad habit. And I've seen these within society. I've seen some Christian, quote-unquote, celebrities just say, hey, it's okay. God says this is okay when his word clearly condemns it. And I see many in the church going, it's not that bad. Why are you making such a big deal about it? Well, Jesus said it was so bad that if your right hand causes you to sin, you're to cut it off, not play around with it. And I don't want to see that happen in your life. And I I look back to history, I look at the word of God, and I think we really do fail to grasp how bad we were before Jesus intervened. And when I understand how bad I am, I'm amazed more at the gospel that God would do what he did with Jesus in my life and what he did on that cross and how he gave his life for you. That even in your your favoritism, even in the midst of your sin, that he loved you so much to send the son of God to die on the cross on your behalf. Now I want us to get back to our text. Look at verse 12 for a moment. So James says, In other words, so speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. This is how I want you to behave. I want you to behave like a believer. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. See, it's another command. He commands us in verse 12 to speak and act as those who are to be judged by a standard. And this standard is the law of liberty. As we learned last week, James wants us to live in freedom. See, this law of liberty that he's referring to is the law of Christ. Now, we have to understand law here for a moment. When we talk in law, we're often referring to the Old Testament. 
Now, we know that the law consisted of three elements. There was the moral law, the civil law, and then the ceremonial law. The ceremonial law was referring to many of the uh, different um, how you were to worship within the temple, how the sacrifices would be prepared, but there is no temple, so there's no more ceremonial law. We understand then that the civil law, which was meaning that how uh, they were to act, interact within a theocracy where God was the ruler, and that we're not in a theocracy any longer, okay? But then there's the moral law, which transcends that. But the purpose of the, the law itself was to bring the knowledge of sin. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 4, it was to act as a guardian until Christ came, to truly, in essence, show us how bad we really were, and also to show us how great God is. And when Jesus came, he said, I did not come to abandon the law, or, or to abandon it, but I came to fulfill it, to fulfill the law. We know that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And so Jesus then creates a new law that is not by the written word, but it's by the Spirit of God working in our hearts. Because Jesus fulfilled it, Jesus then gives us his Spirit to live as children of light to fulfill and show that we are God's people. Not that we are condemned by uh, this Old Testament law, but we are living by a law of freedom because of what we have in Jesus. And freedom is an amazing thing. It's really, truly amazing to me what people will do for freedom. There's only one lasting freedom that can never be taken away, and that is the freedom that comes from the gospel. How do we live in freedom? Truly understand the gospel. It comes from the gospel. That's letter A within your notes. See, the gospel gives lasting freedom. And as we learned last week, Jesus fulfilled the purpose of the Old Testament law. He didn't come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. And in doing so, he freed us from the restrictions of the Old Testament law. And he did what we could not do. Paul teaches about this, by the way, in Romans chapter 8, one of the greatest chapters in all of Scripture, where he says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That if you know Jesus, you're not condemned. The law doesn't condemn you any longer because of your faith in him, because he fulfilled the law. And by faith in him, you participate in his victory. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Meaning that the law couldn't save you. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I hope you've grasped that. I know I'm throwing a lot of truth at you. But the difference is that now we live by the Spirit. Living by the flesh brings death, but living by the Spirit brings life. And this gospel brought us freedom. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and he is the truth that sets us free. He sets us free by fulfilling what the law required. And as we live by the Spirit through Christ, we fulfill the righteous requirement of the law as the Spirit of God, in essence, appropriates Jesus' life within us. And it's the gospel that truly frees us. And he gives us another amazing truth. He says this, For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God is merciful to us. His mercy triumphs over our judgment because of Jesus. 
So we have to treat others with mercy, withholding what they deserve, but there's a corollary to that, and that is grace. See, we're to be gracious to others, giving them what they don't deserve. And we need to make sure that we practice grace. Grace is oftentimes directed, connected to mercy, and whenever grace is in a church, it is intoxicating. It is the reversal of our natural instinct, and it's transformational. We naturally want to judge others, but we don't like being judged. However, in this context, James shows us that the judgment of a person may be accurate, but something even better is mercy, and by extension, grace. We have to learn to offer grace to others. Grace is not natural, and grace is dangerous, because it looks as if the person whom we are giving grace to is getting off without a consequence, but that's not the case. Oftentimes, when someone realizes what has happened, meaning that uh, what they've been freed from in this experience of grace that changes their entire outlook, when we realize what we have been saved from and how God had mercy on us because of Jesus and then given us grace, that changes things. We don't have anything because we are worthy. We have it in spite of being unworthy. And lastly, we see here, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. See, like forgiveness, we have to offer it to experience it. In other words, if we are to live in freedom, then it requires us to live by the golden rule. We have to treat others the way we want to be treated. We have to offer mercy to receive it. And if we are all too willing to condemn others, we have to wonder if we are condemned ourselves. And I've come to the end of this message. And I want us to ask ourselves a question. How about us? Are we behaving like believers? Looking at these passages, seeing it played out, are we harboring onto bitterness or hate? Are we looking at others and discriminating upon maybe their economic status, maybe their race, maybe their culture? Uh, are we guilty of that? Are we really behaving like believers? Are our lives actually representing the Christ that we claim? Are we holding on to prejudices? Ask God to change your heart. Ask him to cleanse you from the inside out so you might love the way he loves. And let's make sure that we show mercy and grace to those around us so that the gospel might radiate through us. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, I'm honored to be a participant within your body of believers. And Lord, to see how people are truly trying to love the way that you want us to love. But Lord, all too quickly, we know that we can try to justify ourselves, that we can point out other people and the faults in them and not look in the mirror at ourselves and to see our own tendency to discriminate, whether it's on economic status, whether it's on race or color or language or background or class. Lord, please forgive us and help us truly to behave like believers. And Lord, we thank you for the diversity of this body. We thank you that you have people coming from all sorts of backgrounds, coming together to share with one another, to forgive one another, to truly dialogue with one another. And Lord, help that happen more and more. Create friendships and relationships that are truly indicative of the gospel and what it is that you value. May we see that worked out, not just in our our messages, but in our everyday lives. Help us to talk to those who are different than ourselves. Help us to listen with open ears. Help us to truly get to know the essence of who they are. And Lord, may we all find our life in and through what it is that you have done on the cross of Christ. 
how the mercy of God was able to pour out on us because of what Jesus has done. And Lord, if there there are those here today who do not know you, uh, I pray that you might reveal yourself and show yourself to be God on their behalf. So Lord, touch us, direct us, save those who are lost among us. And for those of us who have uh, walked with you and uh, are feeling this conviction right now, please uh, convict us and help us to forsake our sin and truly be transformed by your spirit working in us for your glory and our joy. And all of God's people said, amen.